right, so here is a main idea today. And each week you're going to get kind of a, a term, a thing, right, that will teach us about God. Today is omnipresence, right? Being all present. So the invisible God active in our midst. God is present everywhere. That's what omnipresent means. Always engaged and acting on our behalf, on the behalf of the church. Even if we can't see or feel it, as we just prayed, Jesus promised he is with us. There's Matthew 28, 20. In the Great Commission, as Jesus sends us out to be the church, he tells us, I am with you as you go. I'm always with you. And so the omnipresence of God is God's presence among us. God being with us even, or let me suggest, especially when we can't see him. And in the condition that we're in today, in America, in the world, really it's, it's a global thing, our condition here, sometimes we don't see God in this. And so I want to focus on that. Exodus will help us learn about God in the midst of all of this. So verse 1, here we go, Exodus 1.1. 1, 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob, who were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. Here's where we get... Here's, I just threw my lid across the room. Okay, that's not going to help. But, um, so here's what we get at the beginning of Exodus. We get kind of a summary of where we've been in Genesis. And so from creation all the way through to Egypt, Genesis ends with uh, the people of God in Egypt. And so what we see is Joseph, part of his story, his life, thank you, uh, is that he ends up in Egypt. And then in the midst of a famine, his family comes to Egypt to get food. Then they reconnect with Joseph. If you know the story, it's a big story. It's the last 14 or so chapters of Genesis. Finally, Israel, the man Jacob, goes to Egypt. They all move into Egypt, and they are blessed. That's where our story starts out. The beginning of Genesis, it's like you turn the page. The next thing that happens is where we pick up. So Joseph is in Egypt. Joseph's brothers join him. Israel, the man Jacob, and his families come and live in Egypt. There are 70 people. That's the starting point, 70 people. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, verse 7. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So it says the people of Israel. So we've transitioned now in Genesis when we talked about Israel, we talked about the man who was born Jacob, a con artist, literally what his name is, heel catcher. He would con people. We follow his story until he finally submits to God, literally, while wrestling with God, and God changes his name to Israel, which means governed by God. And so Israel, the man, now in this verse becomes Israel, the nation. Now the people of Israel, it says, were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So here's what I want you to hear is our starting point. God is present and active. It says the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, right? Here's what God is doing. See, Scripture gives us not only what people see, what people experience, but it also shows us oftentimes what God is doing. God is growing, strengthening, multiplying, bettering his people in Egypt, right? Now consider our circumstances, right? As, as we kind of work ourselves through 
again, a virus um, and, and, and the economy that goes with that, the politics, the, probably the worst thing about all of this is the politics that go with it. Both sides using a virus, a pandemic, a thing, against, a, really against people to score political points. It, it causes us more problems. And then in the midst of that, you have the death of George Floyd, you have the, the protests turned riots and stuff, everything going on. And the economy shrinking in places and people losing their jobs and suffering hardship. And I just did a memorial for a friend yesterday, somebody who passed away in the midst of this. And we've lost people to, you know, to all kinds of things in this season. And, and this, this recent one was not to coronavirus, but the virus did affect gatherings. So we're all impacted by this, whether we're perfectly healthy or whether we've had, we have several people in our church that have had the virus. And so, um, and thank God, uh, they've all lived um, friends of theirs, family members of theirs have passed, but in the church, fortunately so far, everybody's lived, worked through it. But we're all affected by it, whether it's work or illness or economy, whatever. We're all affected, and so we're in this season that feels a lot like the people in Exodus, like the people of God as they're there. It feels like we can relate. And so as we do that, we want to see how do we learn about this. So God's movement. So let me give you a, a note for you. From famine to fruitful. God brings a family out of a famine into Egypt where they become fr a fruitful nation, growing in size and strength. Rather than just struggling through hard times, God wants us to learn about his character and faithfulness. So at one point, the family is enduring a famine, right? And then God uses that, brings them out of the famine into Egypt, but they have to go to a foreign nation. They don't know what God is doing, but God knows what God is doing. They had committed some heinous sins against their brother Joseph, who ends up in charge of Egypt, and instead of taking it out on them, forgives them, welcomes them, moves the family in, and God blesses them. So by outward circumstances, we can see the struggles, but as we watch the story unfold, what we see is God's goodness, God's presence, his omnipresence, all present. We see God engaging and acting on behalf of his people. And so if that is true, then we know it's true for us today. If we as his church, that God is present, that God is engaged, that God is acting. And so we have to lift our eyes off of our circumstances to figure out where is God, what is God doing? Verse eight. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And shrewdly there is obviously a negative lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join with our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. And so the Egyptians, a new king comes who didn't know Joseph, didn't appreciate Joseph, may have heard the story, but didn't care. It wasn't important to him. And so he takes it out on the people and, and really in his fear, which fear can do to a lot of us. In, our, in his fear, he fears that something might happen with the people. Well, they might join with our enemies if our enemies come to war with us. Now, nobody's coming to war right now, and they haven't joined with anybody, but it might happen. So instead of that, I'm going to act on my fear, and that's what he does. He is fearful of a growing people who are obviously blessed by God. Just contrast that for a minute. A people so blessed by God that you can see it in the growth, in the size, in the blessing, so much so that people are taking notice. Even some people, people in power, are afraid of it. Contrast that with the church today and ask, 
Are we so blessed that other people are seeing it? I'm hoping they're not afraid of it. I don't think they are. But are they seeing God's blessing on us so much? That might be a place we can ask ourselves if we don't, which I would say, I don't see that. Why? Why might not people be seeing that? So what we see can, op- can sometimes be the opposite of what God is doing. What we see is the oppression, Egypt oppressing the people, right? What God is doing is growing them, multiplying them, strengthening them. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread about and the Egyptians were in dread of the people. So God's continued presence, action, engagement, they, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they were pushed against, the more God blessed them. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick. And in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now I want to compare this and I want us to take a look at the people of Israel and ask how they respond and what they do. They're being enslaved and persecuted right? Let me suggest that the church in America or the people in America in general, but the church in America for sure is going through hard times. I wouldn't quite say we're being persecuted. I know others have said that, Um, but we're not being persecuted. Nothing is being applied to us that isn't being applied to others. The same thing applied to the church is being applied to a Buddhist gathering or a Jewish gathering. And the same thing is being applied to church is being applied to schools. And so it's not like we're being attacked but we are in hard times, right? We're not being enslaved and beaten and persecuted, but we are struggling through the context that we're in, right? In March, we have the virus go to a place where we have to go online. In April, man, things are just ramping up and people are losing jobs in the economic pinch, right? May, the end of May, George Floyd dies. June is just saturated with protests and riots and problems. And as things are starting to open back up, the numbers go back up and things have to shut back down again. July has been this like desert of a month. And then August, schools are now back in, mostly online. And so we're going through our own season of hard times, but I want to keep them in perspective. Nobody is beating us and whipping us and making us build cities for Pharaoh. I want to keep it in context that we're suffering and struggling, yes, but we're not enslaved and being persecuted. So we can look at the people of Israel and ask, what are they doing? And what they do throughout Exodus 1, this first chapter, is they are incredibly obedient to God. And they really, really go further than we actually would in their obedience. So just contrasting that, let us see that. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So, feminists, you who think the Bible is all saturated with guys getting their way, here you go. All the boys are being put to death. Sorry, couldn't, couldn't pass that up. So what happens is, Pharaoh tells these two, these two, Egyptian, or these two Hebrew midwives, that when you serve as a midwife, when you help deliver children, I know we do that in a hospital today or a doctor most of the time or whatever, some, some do natural childbirth, but a midwife would, would take that place of helping deliver the baby and working through that. And so he says to him, when you deliver a baby, if it's a boy, I want you to put it to death on the spot. 
right? If it's a girl, let it live. And so what he's saying is he's trying to prevent the future army of Judaism, or of the Hebrews, of the Israelites. He's trying to prevent that strength of their future. But listen to what they did. It says uh, this, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the Hebrew midwives can't kill the boys. They're like, okay, this, there's no way we can do this, right? And so they resist. And I, and I want to I look at that for a minute and just ask the question, at what point should the church resist? And I know that many of you think we've tipped past that point. You think, well, hey, when they said we couldn't meet, we should have just met anyhow, right? Well, when they said we couldn't sing, we should have sang anyways. When they said this, when they said that, whatever. Notice that, he, that Israel currently is enslaved. They're being beaten. Their rights have been taken. Their freedoms have been taken, and they did nothing wrong. They were in a country and growing. That's it. God was blessing them, but they were behaving. They were doing well. They were good citizens or good people, whatever that you, we want to call them, and yet they were persecuted. It's not like they earned it or lost a battle or anything, but they were oppressed. Notice that they continue on. They kind of take it. They, they move into that role. They don't fight back. We have no account of them really fighting back. But we have this one account when Pharaoh says, listen, when the, ba when the babies are born, I want you to kill all the boys. And the midwives resist. They say, no, we, we can't do that. So at what point should the church resist? So I'm going to put this on the screen for you. When is resistance faithful to God? So the church in America, if, huge if, that should be bold, underlined, all caps, if told to deny God, worship another God, or harm others without cause. I put that phrase in there. Is there a time for war? Is there a time for a penalty? A conversation for another day. But if we're called to deny God, worship another God, or harm others without cause, we the church in America should resist. It won't be about our rights or even justice, but about obedience to God. And I'm not making any statement about a pursuit of justice. The church should pursue justice, right? We just spent all our time, about, you know, almost a year and a half in Isaiah Justice and righteousness, right things, right actions, doing what God would have us believe and do and value, and then living that out. So that's, that's there, right? But it, our resistance isn't about justice, and it isn't about our rights. That's an American thing, and that, I'm not saying that's bad. We're Americans. We get to vote for things. We get, to we get to protest. We get to do those things, but where should the church be? The church needs to understand we are a different people. That is the entire point of, Israel's, of uh, Isaiah's critique against Israel is that they're not a distinct people. They act like everybody else. The church is the same. We need to be a distinct people. We shouldn't act like everybody else. Our stretch of where we need to be before we resist is greater because it honors God. It gives us a good witness to the world around us. And we, are, we become a faithful people that are marked by God. And so it won't be about our rights or even justice, but about obedience to God. Biblical protest always comes at our risk and often takes us out of our comfort. I would say always takes us out of our comfort, but I'm not sure that that is, that I can find, that maybe there's an exception. When California said you can't sing indoors at church, they said it to everybody, Christians and non-Christians alike. And they didn't say you can't sing or worship. They said you can't sing or worship indoors. 
I know everybody blew up, but what about they allowed protests? And I remember the smart aleck comment that the governor made. He says, no, no protest indoors. And it was sarcastic, and it was a little snooty, you know, kind of having his moment with the media. But we can go outdoors and sing, and next Sunday when we get together, we will sing outdoors. We are allowed to do that. We should do that. We were never told not to worship God. We were never told not to meet as a church. We were asked not to meet together in person. We were asked not to sing indoors. Do we have the right to as Americans? Absolutely. Should we do it as Christians? I would suggest no. That we are to obey the authorities unless they're calling us to deny God, which it isn't, worship another God, which it isn't, or harm others without cause, which clearly it isn't. And so that we should be obedient because our obedience marks us as Christ. It makes us a different people. It makes us different than everybody around us who wants to resist and protest. It makes us a unique people like Israel here in Egypt. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, because Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. Did they lie? They totally lied. Did God let it go? Totally let it go. And the people multiplied. That does not mean you should lie, by the way. Kids that are listening, disregard. All right, so, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. See a theme here. God grows the people in their obedience. And they multiplied and grew very strong. And because, of the, mid, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. God blesses their faithfulness, right? God has been blessing them while they were slaves. They continue to grow. God blesses them when they finally reach that point where I can't just kill these children, right? God values life from the time it's conceived all the way through, that we're all created in the image of God. So they can't do this. They're not going to gender select. They're not going to do this. They're not going to abort that child. They won't do it. And God blesses that. God honors them, grows them, multiplies them, strengthens them. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all the people, every son that is born of the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. Every son you shall cast into the Nile, a bit river, but you shall let every daughter live, right? Do you see the pattern here, right? Outward circumstances appear as if God is missing, that God has forgotten, that God is not present, that God is not engaging them, Right? But in each passage, we see God actively engaging in people's lives and blessing them, providing a way and blessing them as they are faithful. We see this continually. Are they enslaved? Yes. Is God blessing them while they're enslaved? He is. They're getting stronger and growing in number. They're doing this. God is blessing them. Now, do I want to be enslaved to somebody? No. Do you? Of course not. But that's not our condition. We're not being asked to do that. That happens to them, and they somehow find their way to honor God in it up until the point where Pharaoh says, kill the little boys, kill the infants that are, that are coming out that are male, do that. And they say no, and they resist, and God blesses them. God blesses them in their tolerance and obedience, and then God blesses them as they draw the line. Consider Daniel. In the book of Daniel, consider Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all those, we have those, the stories of young Israelites being taken captive into Babylon. And then they go in, and when they're told to participate in worshiping another god or in meat sacrifice to another god, they won't participate in that. 
but they've already gone to Babylonian schools and excelled. They were the A students, the honor students. They learned the Babylonian religions, the Babylonian literature and art. They excelled and they're there in the presence of the king because they were such good students. That means they got all the questions right to the evolution test, even though they believed in a creator. They did what culture required of them, but kept their faith. And then when asked to participate, to worship another God, to participate in idolatry, they drew the line and said, no, can we just eat the vegetables that haven't been a part of any of that and, and, and live on that? And God blesses them. They remain strong. God strengthens them. They become the best of their age group. And then when told they can't pray, they can only worship the Babylonian God. They can't pray. What we see is Daniel pray. And so up until the point of not worshiping God, worshiping another God, or harming people for no reason, we need to be a people that are obedient, that we live a distinct life. We see that all throughout scripture. So we see this pattern. Outward circumstances look tough, but we see the people obey and we watch as God blesses them. God is present among them, engaging with them. So here's a note for you. Where are we looking? We see two viewpoints in Exodus. One where God protects and grows the people, and the other is a, negative, a set of negative outward circumstances. Where we look right now, today, where we, the church, all of us listening, and again, this isn't about everybody else. This is about us. God is calling us to obedience, not the people outside, not our next door neighbor, not our spouse, not, but us. We must be obedient. And so this is to us, where we look, where we fix our eyes, what circumstances, what things we see will determine what we see, right? Where we look will determine what we see. Do we see God or do we just see our circumstances? Do we see God amidst coronavirus and racial tension and economy downturns and this and that and the other thing? Do we see where God is moving? Because God is doing things. People are coming to faith. People are wanting to be baptized. I can't wait to get outdoors and start doing some of that. God is moving. God has added people during this season who started by watching online because they were at home and in these circumstances. God is moving. Will we be faithful to that? Or will we just look at what we disagree with in culture? And there's plenty of that. There's plenty to disagree with. But we can look at our circumstances or we can look at what God is doing in and among us. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that, the, that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. So here's a story. A child is born to a family, and the mom hides the child rather, because it's a little boy, rather than admit she has a boy and risk losing her son. So for three months, hides this, but knows this can't keep up. And so at this point, she creates a basket, and she makes it waterproof, and then she sets it afloat in the Nile. Just imagine this right now. This is your child, and you're willing to take and trust God with this kind of risk and I would just ask this as Christians, if we can just back out of that for a minute and just look at ourselves and say, why, why do we always wait until it's just so heavy, so much, so hard for us that we reach out to God? Why, why is it that we don't trust God with every step, with everything, with, with giving him the hard things? We watch as this woman sets her child afloat in the Nile. Trusting God has a plan. 
What gave her the idea? No idea. We are not told how this came about. But she trusts God enough to do this. Verse 4, And his sister stood at a dense distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the water while her young women walked beside the river. She saw, Pharaoh's daughter, saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. What we have is the daughter of the most powerful man on the planet at this moment who finds this child knows exactly what it is, knows it's a little Hebrew boy, a boy that should have been put to death at birth, a boy that should have, if not then, drowned in the Nile, but instead is floating along and she sees this child and her heart is moved. It says, the daughter of Pharaoh saw the basket and took pity on him. See, the gospel is the message that God loves us and that, that we have sinned and that we have not loved God back, that we have sinned and we've gone the other direction, that we've broken all the rules and run the other way. And it's not that people are good people. It's that people are not good people. It's that people are selfish and that people are corrupt and they're not godly. That's the reality. And then we're born this way. You don't have to teach a child to lie. You have to teach them to tell the truth. You don't have to teach a child to be generous. You have to teach a child to share. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish. You have to teach them to share and be generous. You see, we're, we're built in little corrupt creatures as we're born. The humanity is not that good. I know we love to say, well, you know, so-and-so is a good person. They're going to go to heaven. But it's, the Bible says we're not good people. It says we're sinful people. But God loves us still, created us, loves us, designed us. And even because we're sinful and corrupted and depraved, God still loves us. And knowing that we will never become holy and, and fully given over to God and never work our way back to God, God says this, I will come to you. And so God comes in flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, comes fully human, fully God, enters into human history 2,000-ish years ago and lives the, the life of obedience to God that we're called to live. And then, and then in our place, because God had told us when you sin, you will die. And sin equals death, spiritual death, physical death. And that we will, this will be the curse of sin in our lives. So we've all earned a human death. We've all earned a spiritual death. And so Jesus enters in and he lives the life we're called to live. And then he dies our death in our place. And then as he is raised from the dead three days later, as Jesus again lives and lives today, that resurrection offers us new life. And the gospel is this. If you will believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again, if you will place your life in his hands, if you will trust him and admit you're not a good person, but you're a person in need of salvation, in need of forgiveness, in need of saving, that if you will trust him, that you will allow him to forgive you and fill you with his spirit, his power, then we can live for him. But that's the, that's the thing, that a lot of people just stop here like this is some kind of fire insurance against hell or something in the future. If I say this prayer, I'm saved. But that's not the gospel. So the gospel is that we will lay down our lives. And that means that we will be constantly laying it down because we're constantly messing it up. Right? That we're constantly sinning. And so we'll be constantly repenting and growing in our faith. But that we'll be living for Jesus. We don't get to just say a prayer and then live for ourselves. I would suggest, I'm not sure you ever meant the prayer you prayed. That we will live differently. In fact, Jesus says it this way in Luke. 
He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We must then live for Jesus, right? We see this woman who has a child, and this child in her culture should be put to death, and she knows that doesn't glorify God. And so she, she takes this child, and she keeps him as long as he can, and then she has to take a step of faith. She has to set this child in the water of a river and risk everything trusting God. Knowing God is present. Knowing God's not taking a nap. He's not somewhere else. He's not, not listening. He doesn't have his ears plugged. He's present. That he's here with us. And so she sets this basket afloat as an act of faith, knowing God will care for her son. That's how we should live. A life of sacrifice, not a life of convenience. Go back to when should we resist? We don't resist when it's inconvenient. Oh, it's inconvenient to wear a mask. It's, it's inconvenient to worship at home, which I agree. I hate the mask. I, I don't, who wants to live stream for five months? I get it. But it's not our inconvenience. It's our obedience. That we must be an obedient people. Even in this, we see her obedience, her faith, her trust. Verse 7, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, so the baby's sister comes running up to Pharaoh's daughter, to the, the daughter of the most powerful man on the planet. Egypt's the big regime right now, right? And so the baby's sister runs up and says, shall I go call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Right? We see her acting in harmony, trusting that God has a plan with Pharaoh's daughter, right? And let me just say this. When we trust ourselves over to Christ, when we lay down our lives and we begin to follow Jesus, when he, we pick up our cross daily, meaning we sacrifice ourselves and ourself and our will every day, and we, we repent of our sin every day, when we, when we turn everything over to Jesus and aim his direction and let his spirit transform us and let the power of the gospel, of the resurrection of Jesus transform our lives, when we do that, things turn out better than we could have ever planned. Not only is the baby okay, but ultimately his own mom's going to be able to nurse him and care for him and raise him while he's still a child. Even in this culture, he'll, she'll do that with the protection of Pharaoh's daughter. So Pharaoh's daughter said, go. And so the girl went and called the child's mother, her mom. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. She literally gets paid to raise her son right? See, when we lay down our lives for Jesus, things go better, right? And if things are perfect, doesn't mean we won't get the virus or we won't lose our job or whatever, but things go better than we could have ever imagined. When we lay down our lives for Jesus, this is what happens. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she says, I drew him out of the water. So this is Moses, probably one of the most famous Old Testament figures, Moses, right, who is going to deliver the people out of slavery. We know what happens. If you're, any, if you're at all familiar, if you've seen any movies about this, like you know what happens. God miraculously is going, miraculously is going to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt. God hasn't left. God hasn't forgotten. God is present. God is active. God is engaged. He is omnipresent. He is all places, all times. He is with his people engaged. And God is orchestrating that right now. We have to contrast, what do they see? What is God doing? What do we see? What is God doing? Where do we place our eyes? Can we fix our eyes on what God is doing? 
So just so you know, everything up until now, the last 35 or so minutes, are all context for the message today. And here's what I want you to hear. Today, we are not Israel. I know in Isaiah, we were Israel. In Jerusalem, we, we found ourselves in their story. Today, we're not. Today, we're Moses. Today, we can identify with Moses, not with Israel. We'll get there, all right? Verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, and he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand, murders him, buries him. When he went on the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man of the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And the man said to Moses, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Moses goes from a Hebrew boy who should have been killed at birth, set afloat in the Nile, then retrieved by the most powerful man, Pharaoh's daughter. He becomes a prince in Egypt, hence the movie named Prince of Egypt, right? So we, we get this. He goes from that, and now he is now going to be on the run for murder. But here's what happens. See, Moses sees one of his people. Well, that's his problem, not his people. They're God's people. He sees one of his people being beaten by an Egyptian, and instead of leaving the slavery of Israel, something clearly he can't fix and is a God-sized problem, he engages it and he acts on his own. He takes things in his own hands and he murders the Egyptian. He buries him in the sand. Word gets out. Now he's afraid. Now he runs, and he's on the run for murder. Here's the result of doing things our way. There's a note for you. Moses in this verse goes from Egyptian prince to murderer on the run by doing what appears noble, but is really trying to do what only God can do. When we act this way, is it because we feel God is not, or when we act this way, it is because we feel God is not there or God is not acting. Here's what happens. When we take things in our own hands, it's because we believe God is missing or not doing his job. And so we think we can do God's job. Verse 15, we're going to read through a longer section here. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled their troughs with the water's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Raoul, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? And why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in the land. So Moses, on the run, is still cared for by God. So I don't want you to hear this today. When we take things in our own hands, it doesn't mean God abandons us. Even though we abandon God and try and do things our way, God is still with us. If we are God's, if we are Christ, if we are the church, He's still there. He's still active. He's still engaged. Moses is on the run and runs into a family of people who believe in his God more than he actually believes in his God. And so he stays with him. He actually marries as a child. Some time goes by. Verse 23, it says, during these many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. What do the people enslaved do? Do they complain? You bet they complain. Of course they complain but they cry out to God for their, for their needs. They seek God. They cry out for help. Their cry, verse 23, for rescue from slavery came up to God. 
God might not have felt, they might not have felt like God was there, but God is there. Their cry for help rises to God. God hears their prayers. God has never not heard them. God has never left them. God hasn't left us. God's not missing an action. He's not taking a nap. He's not working on the other side of the planet and forgot about us. He's with us. He's here. He's moving. He's engaging. He's acting on our behalf like he does in the story. We just don't always see it. If you were enslaved in Egypt, you may not see it, but they're trusting in God. They're believing in God. This is going to span about four centuries that they're going to endure, many of them, at least three of the centuries, where they're going to endure this kind of hardship. Verse 24, and God heard their groaning, and when God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, he saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Next week, we'll talk about God's knowing. Today, we talk about God's presence. In the midst of our circumstances, when we out, the, the, the outside circumstances, the things that we can see with our eyes, when we just look, when our vision is narrow, when it's thin, when it's, when it's immediate, when it's just in our immediate circumstances, oftentimes we just see the hardship. But if we can span back, if we can, if we can step back out of things and just kind of maybe get that 10,000 foot view, a lot of times we can see where God is. Maybe we won't always be able to, but the knowledge that God is with us, the, the knowledge that, that God has never left us, that Jesus is promised to be with us, that his life empowers us, it gives us victory, that his death forgives us, and that his resurrection fills us with his spirit, gives us new life, and that he promises he is present. Jesus at one point tells his disciples, it's better that I go away. And I often ask the guys when we do discipleship, what is better than Jesus being right there with you? And the answer is Jesus living inside of you, his spirit in you. God is always present. He's alive and well in every believer. Jesus is amongst us. Jesus is with us. God is acting and engaging on our behalf. We need to trust that. I want to close with just two notes and a verse of application today. So what do we do? If we learn this, if we believe God is with us, what do we do? The first thing is today we are Moses. We're not Israel. Israel, persecuted and abused in Egypt, remains faithful. The church in America is neither being persecuted nor being faithful. Like Moses killing the Egyptian, we solve things our way. We, the church, solve things our way with politics, rebellion, and arguing on social media as if that will fix things. We're not Israel today. Most of the time we are. Most of the time we find ourselves in the rebellion of the people, and we will inside of Exodus. And today, we see ourselves in Moses, in a people who forget that God is active, forget that God is there, and Moses takes things into his own hands. And that's what the church is preoccupied with doing today all across our country. A second note, seeing the invisible God. God honors Israel's obedience by saving and growing them in Egypt. The church today needs to surrender to Jesus like Moses was surrendered to the water. We need to place that kind of amazing trust in Jesus today. Jesus has promised that we are his and he is here with us. When I say here, I don't mean in the building. I mean here, here in your home, here inside of you, here with me, here with us. He is here with us. This all is the context for the verse that you hear quoted a lot. But all of this, when we are faithful and when we believe and when we trust that God has a plan and we watch, and we wait, and we see what God is doing in our midst, no matter what the outside circumstances look like, we watch God move and act on our behalf. 
That's the context of this verse in Jeremiah 29, where he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for the welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. When you seek God with all your heart means you don't get caught up in the rebellion of everybody else. You don't get caught up in the politics of everybody else. It doesn't mean you can't vote and have a position and be educated, but you don't think that's your solution. And you don't just say, you know what, I don't care what the governor says, we're going to do this. We don't become that arrogant, proud of heart, rebellious people that so many are doing. We are faithful to God. We trust in God. We believe that God has a plan and that that plan is for our good and our welfare. And we watch as God grows the people. And as they leave, they start out 70, they will leave a massive nation and they will be paid by Egypt to leave. They will leave a wealthy people. Can they see that enslaved in Egypt? No. But is that what God is doing? Yes. And that's what the story of Exodus is about. And that when we pray, God will hear us. Why? Because we're trusting in him and we're not taking things into our own hands. And I get it. And I, I know the emails will come and I butt this and God has called us to worship. Listen, we've never stopped worshiping. We've never stopped gathering. We just tried to do it in ways that were obedient. And next week we'll start getting together outdoors and we will sing and we will worship and it will be in compliance to the state and in obedience to God because God calls us both to worship and to be in compliance. And then God calls us to be a good witness and we're a rebellious, arrogant people. We're not a good witness. God also care, calls us to care for the vulnerable. And I, I know there's a variety of opinions on the virus, but caring for the vulnerable means we do things, we go over and above to care for people who are marginalized or at risk. And we will continue to use those four principles to guide us through this season. And we will trust that God has a solution. And we will resist taking the solution to our own hands because God is here always. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You are God. You are God in the flesh. You are also God omnipresent. Just as the Father is everywhere, so you too are here with us. Your spirit everywhere inside of us with every one of your, your children, your church, your true followers, believers. Jesus, if we truly believed all those things, we would live differently. And I start with me. If I truly believe that all the time, without doubt, I would live differently. I would behave better knowing you were with me. I would not take things into my own hands and surrender to your spirit more. Our church would do the same. Everybody at home would do the same. And so Jesus, help us. We are yours. We, are, we call ourselves Christians. We are followers of Jesus. We identify ourselves by your name. So let us trust you. Let us believe in you. Let us be led by you. Jesus, we are yours. It is in your name we pray. Amen.